Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. On March 10, 2011, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake off the west coast of Japan triggered a tsunami that critically damaged the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The July 2011 issue of IEAM features 16 commentaries that were solicited as a result of this recent nuclear accident. The series is entitled Challenges Posed by Radiation and Radionuclide Releases to the Environment, and the commentaries address various aspects of radiation concerns, including environmental chemistry and toxicity, bioaccumulation, environmental policy, and risk assessment. Readers can access these commentaries for free on our website through the end of December 2011. With me today are two of the authors in the series, Igor Linkoff and Bradley Sample. Igor is an adjunct faculty member with Carnegie Mellon University in Pennsylvania and also a research scientist with the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center in Massachusetts. Brad is a principal scientist with the California-based company Ecological Risk Incorporated. Igor and Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Jenny, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to take part in this uh, series. Well, we certainly appreciate both of you taking the time. Igor, let's start with you. Many of the papers in this series emphasize risk assessment and management of radionuclides, which are the radioactive particles that are released after a nuclear accident. Will you briefly describe the ecological and human health risk assessment procedures for radionuclides, but also highlight some of the similarities and differences between the two? Uh, yes, uh, interestingly enough, a risk assessment for radionuclides is uh, not too different from a risk assessment for chemicals and is regulated from environmental and ecological point of view uh, and EPA point of view by the same uh, laws. The main differences with radionuclides are uh, the slightly different uh, doses. We have external and internal doses due to external radiation, like gamma radiation emitting from radionuclides that travels basically through air and through uh, all surfaces. And internal, the dose that comes from radionuclides deposited within the body. And this adds very interesting dynamic on the exposure side, uh, resulting in short and long-term exposure assessment that may be different from each other. In addition, we know more about radionuclides and we have better risk characterization models in both, uh, especially on human health side. We know uh, when radionuclides deposited in body, uh, we know better types of cancer that they, that they could cause and we can use uh, multiple models developed by international atomic energy agencies and other uh, agencies within the U.S. and uh, worldwide back from like 60s and 70s. And we have a lot of experimental and epidemiological data to support these models. But on a risk assessment end, we do basically the same thing for human health and for ecological as we do for all normal chemicals. We look at different exposure groups, different exposure scenarios. We compare uh, concentration to benchmark for screening level assessments, and we calculate cancer risk for baseline and non-cancer risk for baseline assessment, and processes are uh, quite similar to other chemicals. 
Thanks, Igor, for that thorough answer. In your opinion, are we much better equipped to assess and manage risk from nuclear accidents after having been through the experience of the Chernobyl accident in 1986? Uh, well, uh, each accident obviously brings new knowledge uh, about uh, uh, different aspects of, of the system that causes this accident, and obviously we're learning from monitoring and remediating accident consequences. Um, for example, uh, Chernobyl accident was the first one that released significant amount of radioactivity over uh, large areas, natural ecosystem, forest, aquatic ecosystem. And uh, we learned a lot from that accident. For example, one of the findings that actually uh, I researched for my PhD thesis back in the 90s is that a natural ecosystem significant things for radionuclides, they can hold radionuclides for a very long time, and it uh, highlighted the importance of interaction of radionuclides uh, with organic matter and importance of fungi and mycorrhizae in fade and transport of radionuclides from top soil levels down uh, to groundwater. But eventually, with which with accident, the question comes whether we need to have a better regulations to prevent this accident from happening, or have we missed anything in the assessment, in risk assessment, uh, to prevent this accident? And in fact, my paper in special issues relates to this factor. We compare whether nuclear regulation and benchmark use nuclear regulations are different across different agencies, and we found that know that they are very conservative, as conservative as with any other agency. So then the question is what we are learning about risk assessment. And on risk end, we definitely need to learn more and be prepared better for future accidents. And what is interesting about this special collection of papers is that importance of addressing a big picture and doing holistic assessment is kind of the theme across all these uh, papers uh, in this issue. Many authors bring resiliency concept and other concepts that reflect holistic nature of accident and preparedness for that. So um, we do have better models. We do have better understanding of radionuclides fed and transport in the environment. And uh, this accident probably will bring better understanding of aquatic chains. But in preventing this accident, it's clearly we are now in a position to start looking at the whole system and look at trade-offs across different types of energy sources and different types of impact the different energy system gives us. And obviously, ecological impact are very important in uh, comparing footprint of different energy alternatives. As they should be. Thank you, Igor. This question is for Brad. Brad, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster is one of the very few cases where radionuclides have been released in large quantities to coastal ecosystems. Are there special concerns regarding the assessment of ecological and human health risks in a marine environment? I don't necessarily think that there are special concerns uh, that are unique to this. I mean, it's 
the event that we have is is unprecedented in scale and duration. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it is still an ongoing uh, release and incident. I, I don't believe that it has yet been uh, stopped. But uh, the issues that we have are going to be common to any sort of, of a contaminant release into sort of a coastal system. So one of the things to keep in mind with uh, radionuclides is that the uh, exposure and effects are, are, are a bit different than we would think of a standard chemical exposure. We have both an internal and external component to um, the exposure. So we need to think about not only what uh, the biota uh, are exposed to that within their tissues uh, or what they may have ingested, but in addition to what they may be exposed to uh, that's in the environment in which they live, in the sediment and in the water that they may be residing in. And this is particularly a concern because some of the, the benthic and uh, sediment-associated biota are going to get um, greater exposure than will those that live in the water column, primarily because the, most of the radionuclides will have a tendency to accumulate or uh, be deposited into the sediment. Um, and that will increase the uh, exposures that the benthic biota will be uh, experiencing. Thank you, Brad. One thing that many people are concerned about is the transfer of radionuclides through the food web. Mm -hmm. Would you briefly discuss the potential for radionuclide accumulation in plants and animals, and then also the potential transfer to top predators, including humans? Yeah, the one thing to remember is, is that radionuclides are simply the same elements as non-radioactive uh, elements. They will behave in the same manner. They'll be accumulated uh, and integrated into tissue uh, as will any non-radioactive uh, isotope. So if the element that we are talking about already has a tendency to be accumulating uh, into tissue, you know, the same will occur with uh, radionuclides. You know, they're not going to be more or less accumulation uh, because it happens to be a radionuclide. So, you know, unlike chlorinated organics and some other, uh, say, mercury, which have a tendency to biomagnify and get higher levels as we move up the food web, that's something that does not generally happen with most radionuclides. Uh, what you will see is that they do accumulate, they are taken up, uh, and they do get transferred but you generally do not see elevated levels as you move up through the food web. You know, there will be some radionuclides where you may see uh, those, but it, it differs with, you know, by and large, most of the isotopes do not biomagnify. Um, that does not mean to say that there is not potential exposure and the, the potential for risk as you um, move to uh, different levels within the food web. It just means that it's not uh, the top predators are not necessarily at greater risk than our uh, lower-level consumers. And in general, the top predators, because of the two components, both the internal and external component of exposure, um, the higher predators may be at a lower risk uh, than will be lower-level invertebrate or lower-level biota, simply because the lower-level biota will be living in closer proximity to contaminated media in addition to having uh, radionuclides within their tissues. So they'll get both a uh, greater external and an internal exposure. So do you know if there's already testing in place for marine biota? Um, I expect that there are. I know that I I have talked with uh, some uh, individuals, some researchers up in Canada who are uh, intending to incorporate radionuclides into their sampling uh, programs. 
uh, mainly to track, you know, since they already have ongoing uh, programs, they can add this as, a, as an additional component to their work. I think that this, you know, typically when these sorts of events happen, there will be uh, extensive monitoring over time to track where radionuclide signature uh, is evident. I don't know specifically which are the isotopes or the radionuclides that will be most uh, indicative of this release, but I would expect that uh, monitoring of both uh, fish, seabirds, uh, marine mammals, uh, will go on for uh, any number of years to track where do we see exposure and where where are the uh, radionuclides from this release um, going and where are they uh, being deposited. Thanks, Brad. I wish we had time for a follow-up discussion on this topic, but we'll have to stop it here for today. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with us. For our listeners, you've been listening to Igor Linkoff and Brad Sample talk about the series Challenges Posed by Radiation and Radionuclide Releases to the Environment. Access all 16 commentaries in the July 2011 issue of IEAM. The commentaries will remain freely accessible on our website to all readers through the end of December 2011. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.